It is often said that a film is written three times, initially by the screenwriter, secondly by the director during principal photography, with the third and final draft delivered by the editor. Rarely has that been so true as in the case of The Conversation, a mystery thriller starring Gene Hackman as Harry Cole, a surveillance expert hired to monitor a meeting between two young lovers. Released on April 7th, 1974, it was originally conceived by Francis Ford Coppola back in the mid-1960s, after chatting with his friend and fellow director, Irvin Kirshner. Here is Coppola in the year of the film's release, recording the discussion. We were just talking about things, and we were talking about the espionage and the way surveillance had become a business. And uh, after that conversation, I thought about it and thought about it and found that I could never really put it down. And so I was, I began to do it as a formal project. So, although Coppola originally wrote the script back in the mid-60s, the conversation didn't go into production until November 1972. In fact, the only reason why Coppola got to film it at all was because of the phenomenal success of The Godfather. However, despite the acclaim for that film and complete creative control over this project, he served as his own producer. Coppola found himself at odds with the cinematographer Haskell Wexler. Wexler had already earned an Oscar for lighting Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and before that had established himself as an accomplished documentarian. But with Wexler constantly complaining that the sets, designed by Coppola's regular production designer Dean Tavalaris, were impossible to light, Wexler was fired and replaced by Bill Butler, who would lit Coppola's 1969 drama The Rain People. Vinny? Vinny? Would, do you think do you think that before we were married that maybe I was too independent or too set in my ways or something? I mean, well, I used to wake up in the morning and and it was my day and and now it belongs to you. Replacing Wexler meant that some scenes had to be reshot, which delayed the conversation's already complicated shooting schedule. With Paramount Pictures pressing him for a sequel to The Godfather and after having initially said no, suggesting they appoint Martin Scorsese instead, the studio made Coppola an offer he couldn't refuse. Agreeing to the proposal, Coppola then found himself in a very tight timetable because, with an early start date on The Godfather Part 2, the conversation had to be wrapped faster than originally planned. Here is Walter Murch, who served as the conversation's supervising editor and sound designer. The problems of not shooting with 10 days of shooting, we were able to turn one of the scenes that was partially shot into a dream sequence that, uh, where he talks to the girl in the conversation in the fog. So in the script, this was something that actually re was really supposed to happen in reality, but we turned it into a dream. And um, the net result was that the 10 unshot pages turned into one shot that we needed. Paradoxically, Murch found himself in the position of not having enough material to make sure that the story was coherent, while also having so much material that it complicated the plot. Several story strands had to be ditched. One involved Harry's troubled 13-year-old niece, Tony, while another covered the disgruntled tenants in the apartment building which Harry not only lives in, but owns. So, from an initial rough cut of close to five hours, Murch had to streamline the mystery, but still leave room for character and theme. With Coppola off filming the Godfather sequel, Murch implemented the cuts, screened them for the director, and together, the collaborators delivered a masterpiece that was awarded the Palme d'Or at Cannes. What about me? You'll see. Mm. 
Coppola has often claimed that he never had a signature style of film storytelling. Yet, if you look across the films he was involved with during the 1970s, almost all of them begin in notably experimental ways. Coppola strove to do so because he held a film's opening sequence not only establishes the characters and the plot they inhabit, it also allows directors a brief time frame within which they can educate the audience how to watch and listen to this particular film. The story's opening moments can establish the story's style, tone, texture, technique and theme. Take for instance Apocalypse Now. With its hallucinatory montage sequence, we are introduced to the phantasmagorical mindscape of Captain Willard as he recalls his mission to terminate Colonel Walter E. Kurtz. Saigon. Shit. I'm still only in Saigon. The Godfather Part Two opens with Michael Corleone receiving the loyalties of his henchmen, a shot that tail ends the final image of the first film before going into reverse backing up half a century to tell of his own father's childhood. That opening structure allowed Coppola explore two timelines, to show how Vito descended so deeply into a life of crime that Michael really had no chance of ever getting the family out. My father taught me many things here. He taught me in this room. He taught me, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. Although Coppola did not direct it, Patton, which he co-wrote, begins with a lengthy speech delivered by the general in front of an enormous American flag. I want you to remember that no bastard ever won war by dying for his country. He won it by making the other poor dumb bastard die for his country. The Godfather also opens with a lengthy speech. I believe in America. America has made my fortune. And I raised my daughter in the American fashion. The film opened on a tight shot of Bonacera's face, before ever so slowly zooming out to reveal him standing in a darkened room where Don Corleone was quietly listening. The manoeuvre sounds simple enough, but with the speech taking almost three minutes, the zoom out had to be so smooth that it was actually timed with a computer. The conversation opens in a similar, but directly opposite way. Beginning with a wide shot overlooking San Francisco's Union Square, the camera slowly zooms in on the open space. As the zoom continues, it gradually picks out a man wandering through the crowd in what appears to be a nameless fashion. Again, it sounds simple enough, but again, with the maneuver taking over three minutes, a computer had to be deployed to keep the zoom smooth. While the speeches we hear in Patton and the Godfather are important, 
in the conversation, it is what we don't hear that is equally so. While the camera zoom across the geographical space is continuous, the garbled warbling suddenly distorts the sound space. And so begins our education in how to listen to this film. Because time and again throughout the story, Merch, the picture editor, will show us one thing, while Merch, the sound editor, will have us hear something else. Merch was still a young boy in the early 1950s when he began experimenting with recording equipment. Not only taking everyday and unusual sounds, but even at an early age, of taking the advanced steps to mix and layer those sounds together. Such curiosity and exploration earned Merch a place at the newly founded film course at the University of Southern California. There he studied the technologies and aesthetics of cinema, enrolling on such uniquely named modules as non-narrative elements in film form. These courses examined the interplay between sound and image, how a sustained but static sound impacts on a moving image, and how a static image impacts on a moving sound, and then how the image and sound can be united together or taken apart. From the beginning of cinema, the camera lens has encouraged audiences to look at what is important. Important things are in focus, and the insignificant things are left blurred. What I'm talking about is depth of field. But what about sound? In modern cinema, you have foreground sound, midground sound, background sound, sound to the left, sound to the right, sound in front of you, and sound behind you. If, if you have a, uh, a film with a lot of quick cuts uh, and dialogue at the same time, the beginning of Social Network, for instance, uh, there's almost a pull towards the center that it's very difficult to do surround type sounds in that environment. Whereas gravity, the first 17 minutes, there's no cut. And they were able to uh, use the whole theater and move the dialogue around the theater. And it was not disorienting. The three minute opening shot eventually ends with what appears to be a reverse shot down in Union Square, looking up at a man positioned on top of a building. We then get a closer shot of the man this time slightly behind him, as he crouches with what appears to be a long-range rifle. A third shot brings us tight in on him as he looks through the telescopic lens. A return to his original point of view reveals a set of crosshairs, at the centre of which are a young couple walking through the square. Earlier films that used similar crosshair sights, John Frankenheimer's The Manchurian Candidate, Don Siegel's Dirty Harry, and Fred Cinnamon's The Day of the Chattel, gives the audience every reason to believe that a killing is about to take place. But the man with the rifle doesn't pull any trigger, and instead, Coppola and Murch show the young couple, played by Cindy Williams and Frederick Forrest, as they amble about, drifting in and out of earshot. Oh, look, that's terrible. It's not hurting anyone. Neither are we. Oh, God. Every time I see one of those old guys, I, I always think the same thing. What do you think? I always think that he was once somebody's baby boy. Mm -hmm. Do 
two, I think. He was once somebody's baby boy, and he had a mother and a father who loved him. And now there he is, half dead on a park bench. And where his mother or his father, all his uncles now. Anyway, that's what I always think. Coppola and cinematographer Bill Butler deployed no less than six different cameras to cover the entire scene. And through their different angles, different lenses were used to give us different proximities to what the couple are saying. And this is where Murch's sound design is so effective, dynamic and influential. At various times, the sound quality matches our proximity to what is being said. But at others, it is at odds with it. The image produced by the long lens places us at such a distance from the couple that there is no way we could possibly hear what they are saying. And by manipulating the sound, Murch informs us how film language works. Completely separate from reality, it is all about manipulation, which again informs us how to watch and listen to the film. Christmas yet. He's already got everything. Doesn't need anything anymore. Well, I haven't decided what I'm going to get you yet. <laughs> Clearly, through picture editing and sound design, Merch did a tremendous overhaul of Coppola's script. Perhaps the most impactful and profound post-production rewrite in film history. Taking the words in the pages of Coppola's screenplay and cinematizing them into film form. But another draft of Coppola's script was delivered before even a frame of film was shot. During pre-production, Coppola called in composer David Shire to write up the film's score. Unusual as that sounds, the same thing happened a few years earlier when Sergio Leone had Ennio Morricone compose the music for Once Upon a Time in the West. And in 2006, Ang Lee did the same thing on Brokeback Mountain with Gustavo Santolala. While such a method is not common, I think it perfectly logical, because it is another way for the cast to not only understand the film's intended tone, but also suggest to them the tempo of the performance and how it will fit into the film's overall fabric. But no matter when Shire composed the score, the brief would have been the same, to give us access to Harry's internal life, to sonicize what we cannot see. Here is Shire talking to Coppola in 2011. Walter really turned what could have been just a, a boring a, a score that started to get boring texturally because it was just piano um, into something that had this kind of subtle variety by feeding uh, the piano to the mixing board and so we could vary the texture of the piano. As Harry got more and more tormented, the piano got more modulated and uh, the piano sound got more weird. Coppola has long maintained that the phenomenal success of The Godfather somewhat derailed his career, pulling him away from the smaller, more personal projects he initially wanted to make. Which is perhaps one of the reasons why he holds the conversation as his best film. Clearly not a Hollywood filmmaker, Coppola had always looked beyond America's shores for artistic inspiration. And on close examination, we can see several films whom Coppola drew upon for the conversation. The most obvious is Michelangelo Antonioni's Blow Up, but another is Akira Kurosawa's Rashomon, which has four different witnesses at a murder trial delivering contradictory evidence. Not unlike Coppola's picture, 
Rashomon replays the past event over and over from different angles. And finally, there is Alan René's Last Year at Marianne Bad, which, with its cylindrical narrative structure, plays and replays and replays memories which may not be memories. Of course, there is an argument that a film is made four times, the final time when it is released to the public. The conversation's premiere in 1974 coincided with the Watergate investigations. For a long while, that resulted in Coppola's film being taken as an allegory for the political corruption which resulted in Richard Nixon's resignation. But as the decades have passed and technologies have developed, our lives have been intruded upon in the most unexpected and alarming ways. The Cambridge Analytica scandal, just one example of how deep new media can penetrate our privacy.